Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. Commercial subsidiary. Of the BBC. It's one of those things where you're not really expecting to find anything. Your head is very much on being in the bush and the animals. When I saw this thing, I didn't quite realize what it was. It was like a crystalline vibration. Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast. Today, we're exploring the boundaries between our world and the world of myth, magic and mysticism. We're drawing on stories told by our ancestors and discovering how some of the most ancient ideas from times and people long gone continue to influence our relationship with the natural world today. For our first story, we're packed into a dusty jeep, speeding across the Serengeti. Jahawi Batoli is leading a photography safari through northern Tanzania. He's got his eyes peeled for any sign of movement out there across the open grasslands, any traces of interesting wildlife for his guests to photograph. But one of his most amazing discoveries happened when they put the cameras down and took a break. We stopped to have a cup of tea on this incredible outcrop. And, you know, they're these perfect kind of round boulders that look out over the Serengeti. So you climb up on top of them and you literally have a view of kilometres around you. And perfectly placed on top of it was this other rock and it was stunning. Turns out this rock is an ancient rock gong. A rock gong is a fairly extraordinary thing. Imagine a huge boulder, the size of a car or bigger, pockmarked all over its surface with rows of shallow, fist-sized indentations, carefully hollowed out by craftsmen many thousands of years ago. They're very beautiful to look at, but it's when you hit them that they really come to life. Strike one of these indentations with a specially crafted hammer stone and the rock sings. A good friend of mine who I was on safari with, Peter Sylvester, looked around for round little balls because over time that was what's now known as a hammer stone. So he found one and he's like, Jahawi, why don't you tap that rock? And I tapped it and it was just incredible because... You would think that, you know, you hit a stone with a stone and you just get a very dull thud. This rock gong created this incredible sound, very much like a tin pan drum. Really, in that initial moment when you sort of tap it to hear that sound, I was completely blown away. To have that level of sound and that level of resonance from it, you know, for me was was mind-blowing. I'd never thought of such an instrument being possible. 
And to think that, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, people were listening to that same sound, I think that's really just fascinating. You know, we think that art and music is something that we would consider sophisticated and modern. But here you are, transported thousands of years back with this incredible instrument, something that someone may call primitive, but actually the sound is amazing. It's an incredibly humbling thing. All the while, we actually did have guests who were with us on safari, who were kind of watching us, wondering what we were up to. And from there, we'd be embarking on the next step of our safari, which would be to go into the Yaida Valley to spend some time with the Hadzabi, one of the last true hunter-gatherers. We drove across Tanzania, we got to Lake Ayasi, and we do this thing where you sort of spend a morning with a Hadza hunter going out hunting. We kind of got to the bottom of an outcrop, and this was a really big outcrop, sort of walked up to the top of it, and Peter, who had gotten there a bit earlier, came up to me, he's like, Jahawi, you won't believe what we've just found. And right at the level where we'd stopped, we kind of walked over it and down one level. And across that whole area, there was like five or six rock gongs in this incredibly remote area. And the sound of these ones were just even more incredible. It took a bit of time for us to figure out the best places to actually hit to get the best sound. Probably some of the rocks in time sort of moved off their ideal positioning for the ideal sound. Some of them were just like that standard thud that you'd expect. But even that was curious because that gets you thinking, you know, why does this, these are all obviously the same rocks and they're massive, you know, so it must have taken people time to sort of put them there if they did but why does one sound so incredible and the other one sounds like you'd expect you know there's just so many questions that you start thinking about why you know how did this all come about and there's a few ideas that come to mind and in essence, from that vantage point, it could be an incredibly useful location to transmit a message out over the savanna. So in one sense, could it be a form of communication? In, in another sense, where we generally now find these rock gongs, it looks like a really nice place to come together and to, you know, have a bit of a barbecue with what you caught and then tell stories and sing. And we've started to find them around areas of rock art. And you can imagine these must have been very ceremonial places. You'd come together and dance or sing or, you know, commune with the spirits. And that gives you a little bit of a glimpse into truly ancient people. But now to find rock gongs there, it creates a sound. Being in the land of the Hadza, the Hadza didn't strike me as a musical people. 
And when we were trying to ask whether they were songs or, you know, how musical they were, they, they never really were very comfortable with it. And on asking them about the rock gongs, it was like, we don't hit rocks on other rocks. So to understand that these instruments were from a completely different, older culture, and to think that the Hadza are, are living there now and could have been living there for 40,000 years, here we have a window into the culture that predates that. And I think it gives us serious grounding as human beings in trying to understand who we are as a species. Jahawi's discoveries led him to start the first rock project, to try and find more rock gongs before they fade from sight, to make them sing, and to support hunter-gatherer tribes to continue their way of life. I think that's about it. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast where today we're finding traces of magic in the natural world. It's a bit of a cliché, but modern Western ways of life often separate us from our roots in the natural world and have severed our mystical relationships with the places that give us life. But that's not true for all cultures. All over the world, in increasingly small pockets, are communities of people who live alongside nature and who have retained their ancestral relationships with the world around them. One of those people are the Baka, a hunter-gatherer society who live in the forests across Cameroon, Central African Republic, Congo and Gabon. Their relationship with the forest that provides their home and their food is one of mutual respect. As hunter-gatherers, these people have very intimate relationships with the animals and plants of these areas. They understand them as part and parcel of the forest world, of which they too are a part. And they understand this forest as a conscious being. So the forest itself is a sort of sentient multi-organism. It's, it's it feels the creatures that compose it. That's Jerome Lewis, Associate Professor of Anthropology at University College London. He's been working in Central Africa with the people of these forests for three decades. C 
singing and dancing are very important ways of telling the forest that you are good people, happy people. And if you are happy people, then actually the forest is generous and kind to you. If you are shouting and screaming and arguing and, and making lots of nasty noise, then the forest gets upset and closes itself to you. So there is a, a way that good humor, happiness, caring for each other, sharing properly is at the heart of ensuring that that forest always remains abundant. And part of that is recognizing that other creatures have sentience. They are listening to what you do. Okay, it's the nighttime here, and you can probably hear various nighttime insects around us. This is Simon Hoyt. If we're lucky, you might be able to hear a yoka which is a tree hyrax that lives in, in, in tree cavities and it makes a screaming, terrifying noise. He's a PhD researcher at University College London and he's been living with the Baka in the forest of South Cameroon for the last few years. The forest around us here is very rich. It's the second largest rainforest in the world after the Amazon. Particular types of animals that live here, um, the, well, maybe I should ask my, my Baka friend, Mangombe, who's sitting here. It's probably a better idea. Uh, Mangombe? Abelene Monsia Sola. Sitatunga is a large antelope and other antelopes. Bongo is a, a huge, almost buffalo like animal with huge horns. There's elephants and also sangliers, which are a type of wild, wild pig that lives in the forest. Of all the animals that the Baka share their home with, one is particularly important to their survival and to their way of life. One of the sort of highest forms of hunting is elephant hunting. Now, when people hunt elephants in these communities, it's not done in a sort of casual way. It's, it's actually the focus of their most important religious ceremonies. It is an opportunity for celebration. And people won't hunt elephants you know, very often. It's, it's, it's a fairly rare event. And so there are what Westerners would call mystical beliefs associated with these practices. When men go elephant hunting, they say they're going on a mwaka yabaito. But what happens before the elephant hunt is that the women will go into trance travel over the forest, and then they catch an elephant, and then they tell the men, right, you must go and find your elephant in this particular place. And they do this by dropping sacred leaves on the hut in which the Tuma, which is an, an elephant hunter, a great elephant hunter, lives. These Tuma, the most powerful Baka hunters, can draw on some extraordinary powers to help them track down their prey. If you want to catch any animal, you need to enter its mind. And this is a very common feature of hunters the world over. And the Baka have taken this to another level in that they claim, and, and I've never witnessed this, though I know I have friends who claim they can do it, this ability to actually transform into an elephant. This magical transformation is called Mokila. It's part of a long tradition of myth-making and storytelling in Baka communities, Stories which have been passed down from generation to generation. The Baka like to tell stories which they call Likano, but Likano always have an element of truth in them. And in this case, whilst this may sound like a far-fetched story, for them, Mokila is part of their reality. That powerful Baka hunters called Tuma can shapeshift into animals. 
He says, Tuma can change their bodies. A Tuma is following a troop of elephants, but when he arrives at their place in the forest, he sees Yeke Yeke, which is a, a, a backer word to describe when many people are talking over each other at the same time. He thinks to himself, hey, these elephants here, they're not good elephants, they're people. So he knows that these elephants are Mokila. They're not real elephants that Komba created. Komba is the creator god. A powerful Tuma like this one is very dangerous at this time. But he thinks these are people, so he doesn't hunt them, as he's searching for a real elephant to hunt. Tuma shift their consciousness into the consciousness of an elephant. And they describe this as becoming the elephant. And in that state of becoming an elephant, you are able to approach elephants, you are able to travel through the forest with the mind of an elephant. But the key point is, is that the empathy that people have with the animals that they cohabit this forest with is so deep that they feel convinced that they can experience the world from those animals' points of view. The backer's relationship to the forest is extremely complex, and it's not simply a matter of this is the backer and people, and this is where people are, and this is the forest as a separate entity. People can change into animals, animals interact with people through stories and dreams. It's interconnected in a very deep way. These sorts of connections offer a very unique and important lesson for conservation. Although the Baka are elephant hunters, this magical shape-shifting doesn't just help to track an elephant down. It also helps them see the forest through their eyes too. It helps the Baka to hunt elephant, but it also makes it impossible not to care for them, an approach that conservationists might do well to learn from. The communities that live in these forests have done for, well, at least upwards of 20,000 years and possibly as much as 50,000 years. And that kind of relationship is one that has assured the flourishing of species and diversity in those forests for millennia. And it's only in recent past couple of decades when we've been imposing our Western sorts of ways of organizing landscapes that those species have come under serious threat. And of course, elephants among them. When I went in the forest first 30 years ago, elephants were all over the place. We would walk easily through the forest just following elephant trails. Now those elephant trails are overgrown. You rarely see elephants. The forest has been severely damaged by development, by so-called sustainable management. Yet we continue to persist with protected area management strategies that are damaging the forest in, in a very fundamental, deep way. Generally in Central Africa, conservation is quite sort of top-down and imperial, whereby protected areas are, are in force with eco-guards who have big guns and they keep people outside of the forest. In anthropology, we call nature-culture divisions, whereby nature's over here and people are over there and they're not interconnected very deeply. For the backer, it's completely the opposite. There's many complex local rules and cultures which show us how this can be done properly. But it's important that these sorts of relations are respected when it comes to conservation. And actually you include local people and, and their values and their perspectives in management plans of, of, of conservation areas. Our thanks to the Orchestre Baka Gibine, Baka musicians from the Cameroon-Congo border who provided some of the music for this piece.
A lot of the myth and mysticism in the relationships between humans and animals has its roots in fear. There are things out there, in the deep and the dark, that would kill us. Things we should run from, and things we shouldn't touch. The stories that have grown up around certain animals help us keep a respectful distance. But sometimes, our fears don't quite align with reality. Our final story today is about a creature we often fear, but perhaps we shouldn't. This is a story of one woman who is determined to free herself from fear and free a fairly extraordinary family of animals from the stigma that haunts them. So here in South Africa, we've got these awesome little frogs. They look like potatoes and they behave like potatoes. They live under the ground. They're these round little things that only come out when it's raining. They're called rain frogs for that reason. They blow themselves up even more into a little ball when they're threatened. And they're adapted to life underground in these amazing tunnel systems that they build for themselves and lay their eggs under tunnels. So they're actually never exposed or living in water and they don't have a free swimming tadpole stage. I think they're one of the cutest groups of frogs that, that there is. I'm Jean Tarrant and I work for the Endangered Wildlife Trust Threatened Amphibian Programme. Jean is known as the Frog Lady of South Africa. I am coming to you today from near Durban, South Africa. I basically spend my time between here and up in the Drakensberg Mountains where I grew up. In South Africa, there are many cultural and superstitious beliefs associated with frogs. And so the belief here is that if you see a frog coming into your house, that you've been cursed. That's actually linked to Western culture in terms of witchcraft. And you often interact with people who actively want to kill them. One of the big things is to put salt on a frog's skin. And of course, frog's skin is an extremely important organ for, for breathing and has to remain moist. Of course, putting salt on them dries them out and is probably a pretty horrific thing to do. But that's a common practice here. Our fear of these mostly harmless creatures makes us lash out at them. We fear what they could do to us without paying much attention to what we're doing to them. It's a dangerous world out there for frogs and all amphibians. Over 500 of the 8,000 amphibian species are at risk of extinction by amphibian chytrid. Amphibian chytrid is a fungal disease a silent killer of frogs and salamanders, unwittingly spread around the world by human activity. It's been devastating amphibian populations since the 80s. But the way we think about frogs is all the wrong way around. These sensitive species are actually a very good indicator of the general good health of the environment around them. If they're in your neighbourhood, you're lucky. If anything, we should see them as good omens, signs that the world is as it should be. But even the frog lady of South Africa hasn't always thought that way about these harmless neighbours. So when I was growing up, there were always frogs in our house in particular, hopping around and sometimes even jumping up onto the couches. These frogs that I'd see in the home and garden were just our sort of common variety garden toad, which I now know to be the guttural toad. They can get quite big, they're sort of brown and lumpy. In my mind, they were these slimy things, and I used to shriek for my dad to come and take these things away. But the more she learned about frogs and toads, about the sheer variety of species there are out there, the more Jean's perception of them began to shift. 
just went from thinking that all frogs were these brown, ugly toads in my childhood house to realizing that we've got 8,000 different species that are all just amazing in their own right and that they've been around for such a long time. I mean, literally their common ancestor crawled out something like 350 million years ago and different families of frog are so supremely adapted to their different habitat niches. And then, you know, that moved on to a realization and almost a desperation that this amazing group is the most threatened group on the planet. Jean needed to save these frogs, and fast. Research alone wasn't enough. They needed on-the-ground action. As a frog conservationist, Jean quickly realized that the first step to helping these species was to transform how other people saw them too. This became her mission, and it began with education. We don't want to go around just uh, discrediting cultural beliefs, but you know we do want to bring a realization to the fact that these things are not dangerous at all. And some of the other interesting myths are that frogs shoot lightning out of their mouths, and you know when you think about it, that's a fairly obvious one. Frogs have very long tongues, and they do shoot them out incredibly quickly, and that's to help them catch their prey. Another one is that tree frogs will just jump on you and stick on you forever. And then, you know, you ask people, well, have you ever, ever seen anyone walking around with a frog stuck on them? And so we'll start every lesson saying, who's scared of frogs? Every hand in the class will go up. So I have here a raucous toad. Um, she's a big female. I know she's a female because of her size, but also because of her white throat here. You know, once the sort of realizations come that uh, a lot of these myths are not grounded in reality, it's actually quite easy to converse about it and to start dispelling these, these fears. After the lesson and after showing some real frogs in the classroom, the hands that go up are, are much fewer. That's one of the most rewarding things, especially with school learners, uh, when you see that recognition and that fear factor reducing. Um, and you can see these big paratoid glands behind the eyes um, and the lumpy skin. And so these glands do produce the toxin. Working to break down the ancestral fears of local people was the first big challenge. The second was to enlist those same people to help save the frog's habitat. So a lot of our work is done with the local communities where our threatened species occur and where these special wetland sites are in particular. So they coincide with areas that are under threat from development um, or transformation through agriculture and their habitat is becoming more and more limited. And yet those habitats are some of the most important in terms of, uh, you know, if we're talking about wetlands, then it's flood attenuation and water provisioning and all of that kind of thing. And, you know, these communities are living literally almost within the footprint of the wetland. And so they're bound to encounter not just the frogs, but things like snakes and other things that they may be, be scared of. We try and make that linkage between why these habitats are so important and saying, well, if you didn't have these frogs, you wouldn't have these wetlands and then you wouldn't have these life-giving services like water. Toads will also blow themselves up and will often release water when you pick them up. Again, a defense mechanism. So we're gonna let her go now back into the pond. 
each and every single one of us can really make quite a big difference through our daily choices and whether that's you know from what we eat to where we go but there's really a nice movement in terms of urban uh, conservation and what you can do in your own spaces and so even in a small garden uh, building a little pond having the aquatic plants uh, will really do a lot to attract wildlife to your garden Uh, and it's amazing how quickly that happens and they will come and find you and it's incredible to watch that process so give it a bash. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. I'm Emily Knight and today's mystical collection of stories was produced by Tom Bonnet, Caitlin Hobbs and Eliza Lomas. We'll be back next week with more stories from the wildest corners of our planet. Stories of the people who got lost in them and the extraordinary things they found. See you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.